This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Good day. And senior writer for Tablet Magazine, Leah Leibovitz. And a very happy summer to all. This week we spoke with the legendary Joel Gray, actor, director, and as you will learn, flower aficionado. We also spoke with author Matthew Futterman, who's been a guest on the show before, but he has a new book out. It's called Running to the Edge. It's about the deep, weird history of distance running, which I promise you, even if you're not a former distance runner like me, it's really interesting stuff. It's really spiritual. We are delighted to have him back. But before we get to the guests, lots of stuff to do, news of the Jews to talk about, and I have to catch up with my homies, with Liel and Stephanie. Lots going on in the Oppenheimer household. I will just fill you in. It can all be summed up with three words, Women's World Cup. Rebecca is deep, deep, deep into the Women's World Cup of soccer, in which the United States is apparently a favorite. I'm learning a lot about it. She actually took some of her own money, her hard-earned babysitting and bat mitzvah money, and purchased a YouTube all-sports pass or something so that she can watch every single streaming game. So we've lost her for the month. How much of a soccer team could your family fill right now? (laughs) A team is 11 players at the high levels. So we got seven, and the dogs will chase a soccer ball. So we are at... um, Keep at it. You're almost there. We're (laughs) three quarters of the way. The cat will not come out of the basement. The cat would deflate the ball, which counts as a win. (laughs) But I have to tell you something. So Rebecca's been in a panic because she said, Dad, you know, I'll be able to watch a couple weeks of games. Then I go off to Camp Ramah, at which point I don't have any devices. I don't have TV, which all of which would be fine in a normal summer. But how am I going to watch the Women's World Cup final? So I don't think Camp Ramah would mind my saying. She wrote to the Gadolim, to the Rabbanim, the high rabbinic sages of Camp Ramah. She sent an email and said, you know, you want us to become striving, excellent Jewish women with self-confidence in our minds, and our bodies. Women's World Cup embodies all of that. I think you should find a way for me to get to a TV screen for the Women's World Cup in the middle of... of. (laughs) She's like, as the Talmud says... In tractate soccer, tis better to watch the World Cup at summer camp. That is an amazing story. Rav Mia Hamm says... Now, here's the question. Do you think it worked? She did get a response promptly. I bet it did not work. I bet it didn't either. And I'm heartbroken because I really wanted to work. Tell me it worked. Give me faith in mankind. It worked. It worked. It worked. Ah. It worked. They wrote her back and said... you know, I haven't seen the email, but apparently it was like, but of course... The sages would have agreed that for an empowered young woman coming up in the world into her Jewish womanhood to watch this soccer. No, I mean, look, they I think they knew it meant a lot to her. And I think, look, frankly, I think they probably all want to watch it, too. So, you know, God bless Camp Ramat, which is truly one of the great corners of world jewelry. So that's what's going on here is we lose Rebecca. It's the last day of school today as I speak. We lose Rebecca to overnight camp next week, but at least she'll be tethered to Women's World Cup soccer. So that's what's going on with me. What, what about you guys? So I see your uh, your precocious daughter writing a charming letter to Camp Rama, and I raise you my daughter, yeah. who, who yesterday kind of inquisitively was like, do you ever talk about me in the podcast? I was like, you know, from time to time, but I try to respect your privacy. She's like, no, you should, you should tell everyone what we're going to do July 4th weekend. And I was like, you know what? I think that is a really good idea because on July 5th, Lily and I will get in the car and travel late at night to Atlantic City to watch Lily's new musical crush, her new favorite artist. And I cannot tell you how proud I am of my daughter, Mr. Toby Keith. <laughs> Lily, oh Lily has stumbled upon. I played some Toby Keith on a car ride. Lily listened to Courtesy of the Red, White and Blue, which contains the famous line, we'll put a boot, boot in, in your, your ass. ass. It's the American way. And Lily's like, oh, my God, this man captured the inner stirrings of my soul. 
He understands oh me. What God. else has he done? So I played Red Solo Cup and then whiskey for my men and beer for my horses. And she was like, wow, here's an artist who sees the world exactly as I do. Can you please <laughs> go red, to white, the and show? Blue. Right. And I was like, Lily, let me tell you a little bit about what a Toby Keith show <laughs> looks like. And she was like, that sounds amazing. I'll take a sip of your beer. It will be perfect. And so July 5th, me and my child, Atlantic City, New Jersey, we're going to make things great. Again. And then you're going to hit the tables, right? A little blackjack? Absolutely. This is funny because you last took her to a Taylor Swift concert. That's right. Where I really thought you guys had like reached the pinnacle of your musical collaboration. I think we're taking it to new levels. By the way, uh, if I do take her to the casino, I think she'll be really great at like counting cards because like she just literally just learned counting. (laughs) You know, (laughs) taking a second grader to a table is a great idea. She'll be counting cards out loud. So Stephanie, what have you been up to? Okay, guys, last night I went to dinner with our producer, Sarah Fredman Ader. In addition to talking about all of you, we had kosher ramen, which I had never had before. This place, Boro Boro, on the Upper West Side. I shouldn't be talking for her, but she had never had ramen before because she keeps kosher. And ramen is like, I think, in, at its essence, pork juice, which I think is why it's so delicious. She has noodles in pork broth, basically. So we went and I had kosher ramen and it was pretty good. Awesome. Let me say something. I'm 874 pounds. I spend about 21 hours a day eating nonstop. And ramen is one of my favorite things in the world. I have sampled all of New York City's pork juice-based ramen. Uh, this is an unpaid, unsolicited endorsement. <laughs> Boru Boru is a phenomenal place it's in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Here's why. They replaced the pork with what, Stephanie? Well, you told me this morning. Pastrami. With pastrami. You know, the laws of kashrut beyond like not mixing milk and meat and not eating cheeseburgers, like the intricacies of it, I don't quite understand just because I didn't grow up with them and I never really adopted them. I was like, so what about this besides the pork? Like being in a kosher restaurant, I have a lot of questions about like what exactly that means, how it's different than a regular restaurant. I think there's only one thing you need to know is like when you serve a pork ramen, it's nice and salty and kind of oh, like so salty. very, very umami type flavor, which is okay, which is good. When you serve a pastrami-based soup, it is about a hundred times richer, deeper, and more wonderful. And even if I could get back to pork ramen, which I don't because I keep kosher according to the rules of our angry desert god, (laughs) this is a superior freaking ramen. But it's interesting because I stopped getting like, I don't like that like piece of pork in ramen. It kind of just grosses me out. I try not to like eat overt pork really in my life lately. Yeah, like I don't really eat bacon and things like that kind of just gross me out. I like this new category, overt pork. Yeah, yeah. And so (laughs) I'll get like, there's like a good like chicken ramen at the place I go to. But yeah, like I recognize that the juice, the soup itself is pork based. But the thing that grosses me out is like that lump of pork that you get. Right. The big like, here's a big fatty slab of animal. But to answer your question about what makes the restaurant kosher, it's predominantly, I mean, obviously there's the kosher supervision and you have to pay the rabbis to come in and check on it. And obviously there's no cheeseburgers or whatever. But the main thing is it's either a meat restaurant or a dairy restaurant, right? So it's a meat restaurant where literally you can't get cream for your coffee. Think of what it is to take the cream, the butter, the dairy, all of that stuff out of cooking. Although very easy to do with a ramen place. That's the genius of this particular joint. Well, yeah, we had bao buns, we had gyoza. Well, that's right. Asian food tends not to have a lot of dairy in it. So it's a pretty easy place to go kosher. You know what's not kosher? in the news of the Jews this week is the Canadian elections. A Jewish candidate in Canada's federal election and a Jewish voter have together filed a lawsuit saying that the voting day this year, which is going to be October 21st, is not kosher because observant Jews can't cast their ballots on that day and the candidates can't campaign on that day. Why? Because what's October 21st? What holiday will it be this year? 
O-O-O, Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret, baby. So the lawsuit is saying it should be changed to October 28th. Now, here's the thing. Canadians are like, <laughs> you, you guys are making this up, right? They're like, Shmini Atzeret. They're like, wait, 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 wait. It's not Rosh Hashanah. We've heard of Rosh Hashanah. Or as one Yale professor I once had, a very Gentile man called it Yum Kippy. It's not Yum Kippy, and it's not Rosh Hashanah. They're like, Shmini what? So here's the question, right? I mean, obviously you can file ballots absentee in advance and the, the candidate's concern was he can't get to the polls and campaign No, that but the day. thing is there's four advanced polling days. So you could have conceivably like cast your ballot then, but three were on, they say other Jewish holidays, which is obviously like the big ones right. in September ah, okay. or Shabbat. Okay. I don't understand okay. who's voting on a Saturday. but Basically, it's all the Jewish holiday. <laughs> They're like, we need to do it in September. So what do you want us to do here? Right. So the question is, like, what's the over under here? Like, obviously, I think there'd be a lot of sympathy if we were trying to get an election day not to be on Yom Kippur or something. There, You know, people said, could we move it? I mean, it's actually written into our Constitution, right? The first Tuesday after the first Monday. So, you know, this is kind of tricky. But, I mean, Shmini Atzeret, eh, a lot of Jews haven't even heard of it. Do you move the polling place if it's a summer primary that falls on... So I'm Gedalia. Like what? I we're okay. How do we sort this out? You should definitely not be voting on paper because it's the New Year of the trees. (laughs) Correct. How about Tubaav when you should be out courting maidens in the meadows? Well, maybe it's a great place to meet at the polls. And if and if the voting is on Tishabav, you know, everyone's going to be cranky and like vote for like the most horrible candidate because they're hungry. I mean, I am the person who once wrote that schools should not close, at least in New Haven, on Jewish holidays because there are just aren't that many Jews. Part of me does feel like we do live in a big pluralist society and sometimes it's on us. To, we can't expect everyone to reshape their days around the one to two percent of Americans who are Jews. And I think the number is even lower as a percentage in Canada. So I, I don't know. I'd love to hear from the J. Crew on this one. I take the exact opposite attack. I think everyone should reshape their calendar according to our needs. I think not only the day itself, I think also the Erev should be absolutely closed. <laughs> Erev election night? Erev election, election night should be closed. Erev Tisha B'Av, Erev Shemini Atzeret, everything. How about Erev Erev? Like the night before the night before. That's the night before the Erev goes up. Yeah. <laughs> More news of the Jews. Apparently something's going on in northern Israel. Do you want to bring us up to date there, Liel? I do. So Israel's prime minister, good old Bibi Netanyahu, last week unveiled a plaque renaming a community in the Golan Heights as Ramat Trump. Trump Heights. This is in recognition of Trump's recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Now, look, we could have a serious conversation about whether or not, you know, what do you think about Trump's recognition of the Golan, I personally think it's a really wonderful thing. However, none of this matters. What really touches me here is how deeply and truly these two men love each other. You know, it's like such a great bromance. Like, yo, bro, I'm going to name a community after you. It's like me becoming Israeli prime minister and being like, there's going to be a Beit Butnik (laughs) community in Judea and Samaria or Ohel Oppenheimer or something. This is just freaking fantastic. But wait, obviously Trump has to return the favor. So what American community is going to be renamed like Netanyahu Gardens or, you know, Bibiville? Netanyahu North. Netanyahu. That's a great (laughs) question. What part of America would you rename after Bibi? I don't know. I would like to offer up the New Haven suburb of Milford as Bibi <laughs> Ford so that when I drive out to these strip malls, when I go to my Target, my Target, I can always pass a sign that says, welcome to Bibi Ford. That's my nomination. More importantly, though, we need to be naming more things in Israel after, I think, members of the administration. Because now that I know everything's oh, up for grabs. Absolutely. So we could have like uh, Ma'ale Mnuchin. <laughs> Uh, uh, up, up in the Golan Heights too. Uh, what, what else could we do? Oh, oh, how about Har Hope Hicks? 
Oh, I love that. What does right. that mean? Uh, the, the mountain of Hope Hicks. I love that. That's where she keeps her secrets. <laughs> what else would you do? Kfar Kellyanne. Kfar Kellyanne. Oh my Kfar God. Kellyanne. Kfar Kellyanne is where all the breast love chassids <laughs> like trip out. <laughs> what do all these things mean? Like I know like Ramat, Hashira. Like what are these? W- Ramat is heights. H- heights. Yeah. Okay. Tel is hill or settlement yes. on a hill, right? Correct. Kiryat is a village, right? City, village. Kiryas Kosh. Kiryas Kushner? Yes. <laughs> I always forget the name of the guy who was like almost communications director for a week. The Mooch or the Smooch or something. Scaramucci. Could we have like Kyrgios Mooch? Kyrgios Scaramucci? We'll just rename Masada after him. Right. (laughs) Stephanie, you have any NOTJ for us? Any news of the Jews? So John Cusack came in with an NOTJ offering. He did a retweet where he, you can like retweet someone and add a comment basically. And he says, follow the money. That's John Cusack's added on comment to a tweet. That's basically one of those instantly anti-Semitic things that you see, like you immediately recognize it. And there's a quote, it says, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize, which here is credited to Voltaire. There's also a hand crushing a bunch of people and there's a big, big Jewish star, a blue Jewish star on the sleeve. So clearly it's Israel or Jews crushing people. And yeah, so he retweeted that with the comment, follow the money. So it's basically this like little anti-Semitic cartoon that we know he didn't just sort of unthinkingly retweet because he put his own comment on top. So he looked at it. Then he follows up with this cowardly, oh, a bot got me, like a robot, right? I thought I was endorsing a pro-Palestinian justice retweet of an earlier post. I think it came from a different source. Shouldn't have retweeted. And it's like, why are you you in the mix with like anti-Semitic crazy caricatures and sending them out to your 8 trillion followers. This, of course, is very painful for me because for those of you who don't know who John Cusack is, which maybe our listeners under 25, he hasn't been super big for a while. No, you know he made him, like Hot Tub Time most... Machine. That was like, yeah, that's 10, 12 years ago. Or Lloyd Dobler. So in the 80s, he was in Better Off Dead. He was in Say Anything. And then in the late 90s, he was in High Fidelity. And these are like, they're not just male movies. They're sensitive male movies. They're movies for like the guy who doesn't get the girl, except maybe in the end he does. And he spends all of his time making mixtapes and kind of mooning over what might have been. But still has good hair. Yeah. I mean, like, Say Anything is perhaps my favorite movie of all time. It's right. it's it's definitely top three, depending on how many tears I've shed while flipping through the old yearbook that John night. John Cusack and is so, to you what Burt Reynolds is to me. <laughs> and what Toby Keith is to your daughter. That's right. So... You know, it's like that John Cusack is now in this muck is and apparently he's gotten very political. He sort of co-co-wrote a book about Edward Snowden, which nobody read, <laughs> but he's decided his thing now is left wing politics and he's doing it stupidly. And it's heartbreaking for me. There are two or three like amazing things about it. First of all, the, the quote that he tweeted or retweeted is attributed to Voltaire, where in actuality, it was written by a pedophile neo-Nazi. Ooh. The second thing is he says- The trifecta. To find out who yeah. rules over you, just look at who you're not allowed to criticize. Right, because there is literally nowhere in the media where Israel is criticized. <laughs> like, you actually cannot go anywhere to see criticism of the state of Israel in the press. <sighs> John Cusack, we would like to invite you on Unorthodox to defend yourself. I can be won back over so easily, just as you won over Diane Court. He's just going to stand outside the studio with, <laughs> I think it's called a boombox on his shoulder.
Our first Jew of the week in this Jewful week is Matthew Futterman. He is the deputy sports editor at the New York Times, formerly of the Wall Street Journal. He's a marathoner. He's run a lot of marathons. And he's the author of the newly released book, Running to the Edge, which is like a spiritual journey into the mind of Bob Larson, who is this extraordinary running coach who kind of transformed the sport that I myself participated in for many years, though less so in time. Welcome, Matthew. It's great to be here. So, Matthew. Great book. Who is Bob Larson and why should we care? Well, I can tell you that I knew Bob Larson for years as Meb Kaflesky's coach. And that was really the only way I knew him. Who is Meb Kaflesky? Meb Kaflesky is probably the greatest American distance runner just about ever. He won the 2004 silver medal at the Olympics. He won the 2009 New York City Marathon. And then... He won the Boston Marathon in 2014, a year after the bombing, which was, you know, just one of those sort of great days in U.S. sports. And he's so cool that he's known simply as Meb. Yeah, I didn't even know he had a last right. name. Yes, Mebraton is his full first name. And I had gotten to know his coach from covering Meb over the years. Then in 2015, I got invited to this documentary that one of Bob's former runners had made about him. And... Uh, it sort of had the little bit of this backstory for Bob, which was that he had coached this group of like hippie runners in the 1960s and 70s uh, in San Diego. And they were called, they called themselves the Hummel Toads. And these guys were just, you know, they were the scraggliest looking bunch of people. Um, they sort of were everything that running was in its origin days. And uh, they were his lab rats, and they were the guys he used uh, to figure out how to get people to run really, really far, really, really fast. And they sort of came out of nowhere to win the 1976 National Cross Country Championships back when that was the biggest distance race in America, just about other than the Boston Marathon. And they were these guys, many of whom were plucked out of this junior college that he coached, right? I mean, they weren't at Oregon or one of the big, like, you know, Division One schools. They were at this little tiny junior college in San Diego County. And, and he was only allowed to draw from, like, a, a 50-square-mile area to find his recruits, right? Yeah, the, the rules were you could only, you know, take people from the eight public schools in your district. And that's what he did. He took, you know, the fastest people and they came and he became kind of like a destination coach where if you grew up in that area, you just wanted to run for Bob Larson. Uh, and, you know, he sort of molded them into really, really good runners. And it, he had this just, he basically had like three principles, you know, and one is that, you know, you have to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You have to train as a group, it's, which is really weird because we think of running as like the most individual, uh, solitary sport. We always sort of glamorized, you know, the, the loneliness, the long distance runner. And, he and his feeling was, no, this is a team sport. And, you know, the power of the group is stronger than the power of the individual. And the third thing is that you're, you know, where you're born, how you're born, how much money you have, who sponsors you, what college you go to. That is not your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of yourself through the work that you put in uh, every day, day so after day. So he's really unlocking so, these, these, you know, kind of like spiritual, emotional principles in addition to what uh, up until that time was a very kind of like, you know, physically based sport, right? Uh, yeah, completely. Um, he, I mean, there's like two schools of, well, we're going to geek out on running here for a moment. But there's like two schools I'm of- I'm so happy. Yeah, there's this like, awesome. are you- are you a big runner, Mark? Yeah, I, I don't know this about I was, you. I, you never talk about yeah. your running. How come? 
So I was a high school runner and and then ran a lot in college where I wasn't good enough to make a, a good division one team. But yeah, I miss it. I mean, one of the very few costs, one of the very few downsides to parenthood is I, unlike you, I haven't found the time. Wait, to wait, keep it do up. you own a running and, stroller? I don't. Okay, I could don't someone actually. buy Mark a fucking running stroller? <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, this is going to change. Is, like, you, are, you, you have like 46 kids and you don't have a running stroller. This is probably the one item as a parent that you don't own. You probably own every gizmo and it's thing true. in the world and you've made it to five kids and you don't have a running <laughs> Someone buy him a, either a single running stroller or a double running stroller. Can I just say that if a, if a member of our audience decided to buy me a running stroller, I would accept that unethical gift. And you would like, run to their house like, no matter where they seconds. live. Can we like crowdfund this somehow? <laughs> I mean, like get a GoFundMe. Futterman, I loved your book so much because all these terms like fartleks and tempo runs and all this stuff that's like seared into my memory is like, oh, these are Bob Larson. He didn't necessarily invent all these techniques, but he well, he brought these all Except together. he basically did invent a lot of these techniques. I just want to say one thing about the running stroller. Like seriously, Mark, <laughs> Like, you know, my yeah. kids are now 20 and 17 and uh, 13 and, you know, like what I wouldn't give for one more morning of pushing one of those little kids. Push, uh, put Jojo in the, a stroller. Like through the park. It's like it because it's not even like a. I mean, it, it was like we would go running, but we would go, you know, we'd stop at the bakery and get like a chocolate. Mu I would bribe them. You know, I give oh. them a chocolate muffin. And I give we'd bring uh we'd bring bread, so we'd stop at the pond and like throw it to the ducks, and then we'd stop. We'd have carrots, so we'd stop at the horses on Central Park. I'm sorry, where, yeah, where do you live, Narnia? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> carrot to the pond with the ducks <laughs> to the horses, right? Like, right. Central Park. City. There are all these things in Central Park, and so like it was, it, and like those were. Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't run marathons for like 14 years while I was busy doing that. Um, but I was running almost every How day. How fast are you going with a stroller? I mean, you can go pretty fast. Those things move. I mean, you can go. As can fast. you do an eight minute mile with a stroller? Oh, absolutely. Does your child yeah. I mean, enjoy I that? Done it, I haven't done it in a while, but yeah, especially like when they're little, like your son, especially like on a cold day, you just like wrap them up in 46 blankets and they go to sleep, and it's great. Here's my feeling. I'm clearly a little bit out of shape. Just look at me. I've run the 2016 and 2017 New York City Marathon. Well, last time, Matt, you were here, right. Liel was training was for training one of them. Yes. Uh, you had finished a marathon in 2017 by the time I was about, you know, crossing from Brooklyn to Queens. <laughs> and, uh, you know, three hours later, I arrived where you were. But, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed most, and I'd like you to comment it because it has a lot to do with Bob Larson and the book, is a sort of like, you know, getting up at a quarter of five in the morning when the kids are still sleeping, going down by the river and running completely alone so i'm totally in my own head in my own zone in my own space returning when everyone wakes up and it's like a whole new world is unlocked D do you do you buy this or or is all this kind of like overly spiritualizing the kind of zen mentality of running just too overwrought uh i think it can be overwrought but i mean i, I know that i feel all of those things uh you know we can talk about the two schools of running but there's there's like no question uh Look, this is a Jewish podcast, so I could sort of mention this, um, that like running is kind of a form of prayer for me. I, I'm not a big temple guy, as my rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski knows. In fact, oftentimes <laughs> I'll be going out on a Saturday morning and I'll pass him <laughs> as he's going to as as he's walking to Anche Hesed on 100th Street because, you know, we live like five blocks away from each other and you know, we have dinner, we're friends. And Jeremy, God bless his soul, is just sort of like, yeah, I get you. You know, I'll see you when I see you. 
I do a lot of thinking when I'm running. I do my best writing when I'm running. Everybody in my family, I think, is used to me sort of coming back into the house after a run and sort of grabbing the closest piece of paper and pen and scribbling down some like random thoughts. I want to get out before they disappear from my head. So while I do love to run with other people whenever I can, I do sort of love that alone and quiet time. And yes, I'm definitely like an early morning running person. Tell me more, though, about this prayer aspect, because this is like one of the things that was really interesting about the book. I came in kind of, you know, being an avid runner and expecting to kind of learn more, which I absolutely did. But there was really an unexpected element of spirituality about it. How's running like prayer? My friend, Matt Lewis, who I thank in the book, who knows, who's a, uh, just got his PhD, and he read early versions of this, and he started talking to me about the idea of liminality, which I'm going to totally butcher because I don't have a PhD, but he explained it as sort of the moment when ritual becomes revelation, he says, which is essentially what prayer is, and when he sort of mentioned that to me, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what I feel like. Because you start out and you're going for a while and all of a sudden you sort of get into this very sort of meditative state. Uh, And when I was writing the book, I really wanted to touch on like what I feel when I'm running. I wanted to tell someone else's story. I had wanted to write a running book for a long time, but I didn't want to write one of those very solipsistic, you know, what I think about when I think about running. I was always looking for like the right story. And when I sort of happened upon this Bob Larson story and his backstory that could get at the sort of rebellious feeling that I often feel and I think a lot of people feel when they, you know, run 20 miles on a Saturday morning. So there's actually a section of the book where you discuss some of that. Would you mind reading it for us? I would love to. To his runners, Larson's secret sauce reveals itself subtly, especially to younger runners. He comes across as a simple, happy man with plain tastes and an even tone. During training or races, he stands in the infield with a stopwatch, making sure his runners know their pace. But he doesn't bark those numbers the way other coaches do, or try to rouse more speed with hollers from the grass. It might just be a suggestive three or four or five words. Maybe pick it up here, or relax those shoulders, use those arms. He isn't Vince Lombardi, and he isn't a mad scientist or a masochist. He is himself. His methods, still evolving but almost revolutionary for their time, don't require huge leaps of faith. Rather, his runners must have faith in themselves, in their ability to run faster when they are most tired. Also, running is a sport that celebrates solitude. It is the essence of individual pursuit, but his runners will almost never train alone. Like a peloton in a cycling race, the group is always stronger than the individual. The lone runner, training by himself, can slack off and slow with little consequence, but the group pushes together. Whoever is having an off day inevitably reaches deeper to keep up. If he can't, he steals himself not to let it happen again. To lead the group the next day, his betterment, everyone's betterment, becomes the purpose. We run on our own, but always together. Another cornerstone. When you think you are running hard, run harder. Try to keep running harder for longer than you think you can, bringing your body and your mind closer to the edge. That moment when the ritual becomes revelation. This is the origin of what eventually everyone will refer to as the tempo run. The tempo run doesn't have to be very long, but it shouldn't be short. Also, it must be fast. Not faster than you might go in a race, though perhaps farther. This whole meditative aspect of it, though, I think also goes to the kind of person who runs, which isn't necessarily like an intellectual or a scholar, though it might be, but it's it's somebody who's like sometimes 
in his or her own head. And it's it's quirky people. It's like it's so not the person who wants to join the kind of collective exaltation of the lacrosse team or something. Right. I don't know. I'm not sure that's right. And I think that used to be somewhat right. But I think the one the massive transformation that running has undergone during my adult life, it is is that it has gone from being a solitary sport to one of the most social sports out there. I mean, when I first moved to the city in the early 1990s, um, there were thousands of runners in Central Park uh, and Riverside Park and everywhere, but they were all sort of running for the most part individually. You know, I go into Central Park on a Saturday morning, or sorry, Jeremy Kalmanowski, the Sunday morning, maybe. No, yeah, Saturday, <laughs> Saturday morning, I'm there. Eating um, bacon. <laughs> right. And, you know, what you see is just clumps. You see clumps of people, many of them between the ages of like 25 and 37, running together, talking, jabbering. It's become a group thing. It's massive on social media. You know, it's almost like your run doesn't exist unless you post about it. Let me just drill down on this for a second. So when I was in high school, right, the people who ended up as runners, a lot of us were the ones who had washed out of other team sports, of team sports. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in that we group. Were, right. <laughs> right. You're in that group. and You're very candid about that in the book, which I love. Like you weren't a great soccer player. You were, I think, a better tennis player than it sounds like you give yourself credit for. You made your college team, but you weren't an elite, I, elite I, tennis player. I lost to a lot of very good players is, what, is yeah. how I would describe and, my tennis career. But it was definitely like, and we had some like serious, it was also the sport where like, if you were, had some athletic chops, but you also were unwilling to give up like dropping acid, you ended up on, on the cross country team. Is that all gone? Is the freak aspect of it just, is it sort of like all those other Southern California things like surfing and skating, which used to be for the freaks and now just completely taken over by the bros? Definitely not. I will say, I think the hardcore freaks are probably, and I say freaks in a very, you know, loving kind of way, are sort of probably in the ultra world right now doing Uh trail, doing 50K, (laughs) 50K and 50 mile trail races, things like that. But you know, I, I, I sh- man, I, I'm on a, the starting line of the New York Marathon, and I'm in the first wave, and there's some, we're all sort of, we all sort of have our own freak flags. Uh, I'm probably like awesome. the most normal person you'd meet, but I do feel like when I get on the starting line or when I'm running, like that's how I get in touch with uh, the sort of weirdest side of me. But I think also, and, and this is... I- of the many revelations, to use this word, in, in the book, this is probably was the largest one for me. This notion of really how the sport has been transformed into into something that is so profoundly, I mean, it felt so familiar to me as, as a sort of a practicing Jew. I'm there with Rabbi Kamenovsky on, on Friday nights <laughs> and Saturday mornings. But but when you're standing at a New York uh, Roadrunners race, right, the marathon or any of, of the lesser races, and there are tens of thousands of people there with you, and you're all doing this together, and at some point you all sort of get lost in each other, and it's mile 20, and you've forgotten all about the discomfort, and you're just in this, uh, that's exactly the right word, just in this liminal space of, of, of transcendence. It, it really is a, a, kind of, a kind of, you know, a sh- mobile shoal, right? I mean, well, the, I mean, look, anybody can go out tomorrow morning or this afternoon and run 26.2 miles, and it's a marathon, right? But there is something about, you know, signing up and being in this sort of massive humanity that I think allows us uh, to be part of something larger than ourselves. Um, And we really need that these days. We kind of yearn for it. And uh, 
that's that's sort of what religion is to me to some extent um you know you're a part of this community and uh this is you know we're all looking for a tribe so to Amen. speak and and this is this is and I would say I would say runners and and running is kind of my tribe so then okay let's talk Jews is running a Jewish sport are there a ton of Jews in running probably in this country I'm gonna say like three percent right <laughs> I mean I think it's just a, <laughs> I think it's the cross I think it's probably cuts across the so there's no like Jewish meb is what you're saying there is no Jewish meb I mean I was inspired early on when I was what 11 12 years old when I watched chariots of fire by Harold Abrams, who's, you know, the the Jewish sprinter who won the gold medal. It should be said, maybe the greatest woman distance runner of American history, Dina Castor, is Jewish. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, I was just with her the other day, actually. And, and so, and yes, yeah, she is Jewish. And somebody, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, we have to have on our show. I mean, she's one of the greatest runners in history. And I feel like the duosphere hasn't owned it enough. And wrote a terrific book that came out last year called Let Your Mind Run. I mean, you want to go deep and spiritual about running uh, with the U.S. record holder and a woman who has won Chicago and London. Let Your Mind Run is, is, a, is a book to do that with. So, Matt, I have a question for you. When running is like your release, it's your break, it's when you sort of can like do your best thinking. What happens then when you're writing a book about running? Like, does running still become, like, is running stressful? <laughs> it, it's funny. It's a little stressful. I, I have found it a little stressful for the first time in the last couple weeks, like, as this book is coming out and has come out, because I feel like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he's now that running guy. And it's a, and people are asking me like, well, did you run today? How far did you go? How fast did you go? You're going to run New York this year? What, what, you know, what's your time going to be? What are you shooting for? Can you go under three hours? It's like, no fucking way am I going under three hours? Like that would be, that would be cutting off like 15 minutes from my PR, which anyone who's run a marathon, you know, do the math. That's like more than 30 seconds per mile faster. And that's, really hard i'm almost 50 years old you're like i'm just trying to get someone in the running stroller <laughs> yeah exactly so that that's the only sort of part of stress that has come to me um you know like running i mean at this point i almost feel like running and writing are very similar activities i guess that I, in my head you've run 23 marathons Matt? yes and what's the next one? You signed up for one right yeah, now? Yeah, I just signed up for uh, Chicago. I've never run Chicago. So I'm going to run Chicago in the fall and then try and run New York three weeks after that, which should be interesting. But hopefully Chicago will go real well. It's nice and flat. Maybe it'll be a nice chilly day and I won't beat myself up too badly. Matt Futterman, if someone wants to find you on a Saturday morning, what's your loop? So I <laughs> generally am running in Central Park and I'm going the opposite way of uh, most people, most people run counterclockwise. I run clockwise uh, just because the, if you go that way, the hills are sort of longer um, rather than the other way. The hills are kind of steep. Uh, they're steep and short. And I find that like, uh, I like a, I like so a long. So where do you start and where do you go? So I enter at 100th and loop around. My like basic daily run is once around the park, once around the reservoir. And that's, Makes me feel pretty good. And then on the week, how creepy the, would it be if lots of podcast fans started just falling in line with you at like? Oh, uh, that would be great. Point? That would be great. I'll have I, to I, catch I, him first. I, He's fast. Look at him. It's funny because I run in, I see people and they're like, I actually saw you in the park the other day and I yelled to you and you didn't respond at all. And so I must, I think I get into like a little bit of a blinders kind of thing. Um, and I'm really sort of in my head. So it happens. 
Well, I'm just going to say that this book, Running to the Edge, is a terrific book even for non-runners. It's just one of those sports books, like the best sports books from you know Michael Lewis or whoever. We're like, you don't have to care about football to love the blind side. And you do not have to know anything about running to get really into the story of Bob Larson and how he took these crazy hippies to the title. It's just a great book. So mazel tov to you. And I'll see you with my new jogging stroll. Absolutely. Get out there. Matt Futterman, thank you so much for being here. The book is Running to the Edge, the band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, new editor Melissa, give me some cool music. We have a book. The newish Jewish encyclopedia is everything you ever wanted to know about Judaism but were afraid to ask. It's coming out this fall. It's already on Amazon. It covers everything from Abraham to Zabar's, and it will be in bookstores near you. We are going on a book tour this fall. Do you want us to visit your city? Email us at unorthodoxtabletmag.com. Give us the name of the JCC or synagogue or community center or bookstore that you think we should come to. The more information, the better. Let us know how to reach you, and we may hit up your town selling the newish Jewish encyclopedia. By the way, you can pre-order it right now. This June 26th, we will be in Chicago. That means like next week, 
Jew of the Week will be Blair Braverman, the Jewish woman who has raced the Iditarod dog sled race. And the Gentile of the Week will be Greta Johnson from the fabulous podcast Nerdette. Why don't you go binge to listen to Nerdette in preparation for the show? The show is brought to you by Hadassah Chicago North Shore, and you can get tickets at bit.ly slash unorthodoxchicago. Tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Guys, a lot of you have been commenting on Facebook, which is awesome, but sometimes your messages get lost in threads or subthreads or whatever, and we don't always know if you want us to use them on the air or not. So if you really want to get on the air, if you have one of those messages that like has to go out to the whole J crew, call us on the listener line, 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-ISRAEL-WOODSTOCK. Or send us a letter at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We read all of our mail. We discuss it amongst ourselves. We love you. We rage against you. We dream about you. We perseverate about you during our bouts of insomnia. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And also, could you just take 10 seconds, go on iTunes and rate us? I mean, rate us well, if that's the way you feel, because it really does help other people find the show. Thank you. So Mark had to leave before we had the chance to talk to our next guest. So that's why you'll only hear me and Miel. Okay, guys, this is a big deal. We are here with Joel Gray. He's the legendary Tony and Academy Award winning actor. Who's that's credits, a big deal. That is a big deal. It's a very oh big deal. God. I'm glad you agree. Oh, God, help me. His credits include, I don't even have to say them, Cabaret, Wicked, and Chicago. He's currently directing the production of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. And he just published his fifth book of photography, The Flower Whisperer. Welcome, Joel. Thanks. Delighted to be here. We're like a little starstruck. Me too. I think we're a lot starstruck. Does it help to be an Oscar and Tony winning actor to just say like, you know what I really love? I love photography and I love flowers. And I'm just going to take a moment for my own sort of well-being and I'm going to look at things that really move me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, you know, the Tonys and the Oscars, they have nothing to do with your heart and your eyes. So you've you've moved past. You've moved to the stage where you could really pursue true passions. You're you're now in this Valhalla that is reserved for so few of us. No, I don't know about that, but I've always looked at flowers, and I've always had other ideas besides my career. T- tell us, tell us about that, because the book is absolutely gorgeous, and I think it really does this very difficult thing to do, which is we all walk around in a natural world. Like maybe if we literally stop to smell the flowers, you know, we do just that. We take a moment and appreciate it. But you really, literally, and figuratively trained your eye on this. What do you see when you look at flowers? I think that it was always about a kind of a romance, the beauty of flowers, which everybody knows. But I started to look at them four years ago in a new way. I somehow wanted to get inside of the flower and look around. And I don't know how I managed to do it, but I stuck my camera in, sort of like my nose, (laughs) and found some very intimate innards. And created an, an, an immensely sensual, not to say sexual, book. I mean, this is this is hardcore stuff. Watch it, right? Yeah. yeah. How, how do you do that? T- t- teach me how to look. I've always had problems with this. You know, like I'm I'm this nerdy intellectual Jew. I live inside my head. How do how do you learn to look? 
It seems like you've learned to look later in life too, right? I don't. I think it's innate. My, I think my mother <clears throat> had that, and um, I've I've always been looking deep into things, metaphorically it, <laughs> and and uh, flower wise. Does it help in your career as a photographer to have been someone on whom the camera was trained? for decades? Do you understand things more innately having been the subject of photography? Never occurred to me. It's, it's an interesting question. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up speaking Yiddish. Is that true? I did not. Okay, never mind. No, it was not spoken in my house. Oh, really? My father was a Yiddish speaker and his family came from Russia and he was born in Cleveland. But he loved Yiddish. We're talking about Mickey Katz here. Yes, just adored it and was fluent and loved to go to synagogue to the most orthodox on Saturday by himself very often. And sometimes he would take me and he would sit with these very religious old men and um, put a big talus around himself. And I thought, there's something beautiful here. And then we moved to California, and he went less often. But he was a great klezmer clarinetist, also a great American. But he wrote these crazy songs, Hey Muffin Range, Yiddish Square Dance, Dovid Crockett. <laughs> and I think it was his way of bringing himself to America and bringing other Jews who would listen and love the parodies belonging. And I think that was all he really cared about. There was a lot of anti-Semitism then, as there is today. But he fought and he did what he had to do and nothing stopped him. He was a gutsy guy. And then here you are, his son, in the role that I think it's fair to say was sort of a career and an era-defining role, really, in cabaret. And it's easy to forget today, but this was, what, 20 years, uh, 25 years after the Holocaust, right? Yes. Do you bring something of that with you? Do you bring any of these shul memories or memories I remember sitting with my little brother on the steps upstairs, listening to my father, talking to my mother, saying... I just heard on the radio that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, who was supposed to be a good friend to the Jewish people, sent the Jews back to Europe to die instead of saving them. And I thought to myself as a little person, what's the matter with us? Why does he want us to die? Why does anybody want us gone? dead. And that stuck with me forever. And so how does that come out when you're preparing for this role of the quintessential figure of Weimar on the cusp of destruction? I think it absolutely fueled it. Fueled it to make that MC as ugly and disgusting and as frightening as could be, and yet very, very compelling. I'm having chills right now. So to fast forward a bit in your career, you're now directing the Yiddish Folksbina, which I now know how to pronounce because we had Muttel <laughs> Dinner <too>. on. <laughs> yeah. 
you're directing their production of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. I wonder if it feels but like... uptown. Oh, yes, of course. It used to be at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and now it's on the west side. Stage 42. Stage 42. Have you seen it uptown? I saw it on opening night downtown. Come on. Yeah, it was great. I snuck in a babka from the cafe upstairs. <laughs> so felt, good. Yeah, it was really good. Honestly, it was a quite an emotional experience. Tell and me. I was there with I was there with my father, my sister, my father's father first performed it in the DP camps at Bergen-Belsen or something like that. There was like some performance that had happened. Or, in, or they, in your family. Yeah. And so and my, and it just unlocked so much for my father. And for me, even seeing it in Yiddish, it just, I left and I was just like, this is so, it's not campy at all. It's completely powerful in a way that Fiddler often isn't anymore. In a way, like bringing it back to Yiddish was, and I'm like a cynical, hardened New Yorker, right? Like I was not expecting to be so moved, but I was hearing it in Yiddish. It's something happens. I know. It like it, it goes opens, right yeah. to your gaderum. <laughs> <laughs> Does it feel like you've come sort of full circle some ways? I think I think I did this for my father. You know, without saying I'm going to do this for my dad. I think his passion for Yiddishkeit was somewhere waiting to bust out, and I got this opportunity. To tell the story that I've loved for the longest time, Shalom Aleichem, the tales of Tevya and his daughters, and uh, I have a daughter, and I know about that. I know everything about that story. Does it feel like a homecoming when you think about it as a sort of closing the circle of starting these three generations of show business family, starting out from your father and his songs and just kind of like moving back towards this? Does it feel like a sense of, oh, my God, we, we were supposed to become American. We were supposed to overcome all this old world stuff. And now here we are back with anti-Semitism, back with persecution. Is this a hopeful thing or a depressing thing? Neither. Neither. Just real Sort of the way it's always been. And I don't know when it will ever stop. It's a very Shalom Aleichem in that way, right? The kind yeah. of Jewish life goes on. Yeah. I mean, we're here. Can we talk about your daughter for a second? <laughs> can, how, how can we you get mean, her on the show? That beautiful Jennifer Grey. <laughs> Jennifer Grey played one of the iconic Jewish roles of all time That's in Dirty right. Dancing. Right. This baby husband. What was that like to see her in that role? First of all, it was riveting for a dad but also so much herself, so much the little girl. Where is that little girl? <laughs> Can you do it in Yiddish now? No. <laughs> it was great. I thought she was so fine. I still do. She's a wonderful actor and a wonderful daughter and a wonderful mother. She has a 17-year-old now wow. who's about baby houseman's age. Wow. That's amazing. But they're not going to the Catskills anymore, I think. No. They're going to Palm Springs. Oh, even better. <laughs> That's the sequel. How does all of this, the acting, the fatherhood, inspire who you eventually became as a director? Is there a directorial philosophy that you believe in? Who are you on set as the boss? Oh, just tell me the truth. That's all I want from the actors. And they know it. How do you know when someone's telling the truth? I don't believe you. Could you try that again? Do you have anything to relate to? I'm saying to the actors, how can you f find yourself as somebody else and how can you relate to the circumstance of this situation that you're leaving your home and that the Russians are after you? How does that feel to you? What's that about? These are the questions that I ask the actors. And how do you layer in the aspect that they're not speaking English in the show? Like, how I do you... don't layer it in since I don't speak it. 
You know, it's their <laughs> red wagon, unfortunately. Uh, of course, I have an interpreter working with them and with me, but I don't need to know the language to know that they're telling the truth. And so the direction remains the same, even if it ultimately yeah. comes out in a different language. That's really interesting. Is there any role you still want to play? It feels like you've done them all. What's still out there for you? I used to think that I should play Richard III. I was also always wanting to do Tevye. I think those were the only two big things that I ever thought about that I didn't. Richard III is interesting. You know, you're a very great actor, but I find you're way too kind to pull off. Did you see the cabaret? Yes, but... Do you think he's kind? I think there's heart in him. This is the genius of this character, and I think you just, in your description of him, you, you caught it really well. I think he's a, you know, a terrifying, terrifying figure, but I think... If you sort of put him on the couch and ask, well, how did he get this way? It's it's fear, it's insecurity, it's vulnerability, it's 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 a kind of a liveliness. But that's that not makes necessarily him... heart. Say more about that. That's very interesting. I think that people's ugliness and darkness comes from some terrible gash in their early life that never gets closed, and I don't think that's heart. I think that's damage. And do you feel this is what you tapped into to unlock this character? Oh, yes. Darkness. Take us to the darkness. There are places that you use that are so dark that don't belong anywhere else but on the stage. Does it change as you grow older? Because, you know, you've had a host of transformations in your life. You've come out as a gay man recently-ish. You have gone from being an actor to being a director. All this growing up, if you will. Does that change how you approach the craft? Or is it more or less the same thread throughout? I think I'm on a journey to be the most me. <laughs> that this young little boy, Joel David Katz, was just so fearful of everything in life. And that was the battle, was to overcome that and to move away from that fear and love myself. And so if 2019 Joel Grey was directing Cabaret, what would he say to that young MC on stage, played by himself? Darkness is everything. <laughs> you know the story that when I was working on the character, Hal Prince, I said to him one day, I said, I have to try something crazy. And I did. I went, came out and I acted as poorly, as crappy, as low class, as disgusting a character as I could. And I was absolutely so embarrassed afterwards. And I thought to myself, nobody can ever see this. And he came back and he said to me, Jolie, that's it. Jolie, if I may, thank you for being here. Our listeners can check out The Flower Whisper and Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish at Stage 42. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, time for some Mazel Tovs. Mazel Tovs. Let's do them, Leo. So here's a weird and hopeful Mazel Tov for our time. strange. My Mazel Tov uh, this week goes to senators Tim Kaine and Ted Cruz. I think probably half our audience despises one of them and half the audience despises another. But this week, these two gentlemen, the Democrat and the Republican, got together to co-sponsor a really great resolution condemning, in no uncertain terms, in strong, clear moral language, anti-Semitism, proving that, you know, there is maybe some hope, after all, for America. 
that's like the buddy comedy we didn't need to see. <laughs> we don't want to pay for it. Kane and Cruz. Kane and Cruz. Kane, Cruz, and the Jews. Oh, All right, Stephanie, do you have one? This one comes in from Jill Schlesinger. She is from Shaker Heights. She's written in before. She lives oh, in Shaker LA. Heights. I miss she Shaker Heights. She just earned a Master of Arts in Music Industry Administration, and we are so proud of her. She says, earning an advanced degree is what my grandparents always wanted for me, and at age 50, it was about time I completed this goal. Mazel tov, Jill. I Mazel love that. Mazel tov, Jill, and welcome to yet another industry we control. <laughs> I also have Mazel tov to former guest Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Her new book, Fleischman is in Trouble, comes out today. And she'll be on the show soon to talk about it. Cannot wait. And now, back to Mark. Oh boy, do I have a good Mazel Tov today. Our friends Max and Toby have had a baby. Bernard Weinstein Merrill arrived recently in the morning, 8.13 a.m. I forget what day, but it was like sometime in the past couple weeks. Weighing 7 pounds and 13 ounces, measuring 20.5 inches, and named for Toby's grandfather, who by now has likely met his first great-grandchild. Mazel Tov to Max and Toby and little Bernard Weinstein Merrill. We need more Bernards in the world. And I hope they call him Bernie, which would be frickin' awesome. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line 914-570-4869. Get our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live, so to book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. You should go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt for all of your shirts and mugs and all your unorthodox swag. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group, which has been very saucy and sassy and biting, especially toward me this past week. So join the fun. Go to Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. And our new editor is Melissa Kaplan. Many thanks to Noah Levinson for his great work editing the show these past months. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the Chai Town team of Rabbi Jeffrey Weil of Ezra Habonim in Skokie and Rabbi Lizzie Hademan of Mishkan, Chicago. We come to you from Argo Studios, which made it into the Democratic presidential debate, but only on the second night. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>